You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7? We're in verse 6 today, just one verse as we make our way through uh, what we've called a, a new way of living that Jesus set before us. And I've entitled this message to be prudent. And the word prudent means to be wise and circumspect as you move ahead in your life. It's uh, kind of the, the fruit of, of wisdom. You make sound good choices. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this verse together? Jesus says the following. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we look to your word today that your Holy Spirit would look to us. We ask, God, that you would search our hearts and our minds and that, Lord, not only show us things that we need to focus on, but you would give us that filling of the Holy Spirit that enables us to change. So, God, we, we invite you to not only speak to us, but to fill us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In our previous study, in the first five verses of this chapter, Jesus cautioned us about being overly critical, about overly judgmental, and even condemning. Because one of the things that Paul reminds us in keeping our lives in clear perspectives is in Romans 2, where he says, when you say the wicked should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you do the very same things. Do you think that God will judge and condemn others for doing, for doing those things and not judge you too? I mean, he really speaks to the point that James made in his letter to the church when he said, we also are men of like passions. In short, what they're basically saying is that all of us struggle with similar stuff. And if there's anything I think that as Christians we can really err in is when we begin to assume that we are different from other people, like the Pharisee who was praying and he looked to the sinner next to him and he says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. And Jesus made the point of saying, essentially, heaven is yelling back, yes, you are. You're just like him, just in a different way, but you're just like him. You're a man who struggles with the issues of sin in your life. And so it is that you and I struggle with the similar stuff, and we fail in similar ways. All of us are sinners. We're saved by grace alone. And that's a fact that we should never allow ourselves to forget. If there's anything that you ever wanted to have tattooed on your arm or on your hand so you could see it every day is, I'm a sinner saved by grace. <clears throat> because sometimes we forget that. But at the same time, as we saw last time, he said when we see a speck or what we would call a, a spiritual splinter in up another person's eye, in other words, we behold something in them that is not in alignment with God's will for their life, he says that I'm commanded and not to ignore it, but to be, if I could say it, a speck remover, a splinter remover. It's what Jesus was saying, or excuse me, Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 6.1. He says, if another Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should help gently and humbly to help that person back onto the right path. 
Then he adds, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. And then he adds, stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed and share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. The image that Paul is drawing there is really of pilgrims going on a journey, we might say even hikers going on the journey, who recognize that they need each other's support and help, that none of us are quite sufficient in and of ourselves to handle every situation. And so as we go through life, we need other people around us, and especially people who care enough to confront us on the issues that may be hindering and keeping us from being all that God desires for us to be. Yet, as we go on, Jesus explained in this next verse that we just read that we're to attempt, we're not to attempt to remove specks from everybody's eyes or even logs from every person's eye, but only those which it appears to be the prudent thing for us to do. In other words, I need to be evaluating what I say and do and how I interact and most particularly how I correct that correction can be a very offensive and even damaging thing if it's done in the improper way. I know that when I was going through the process of determining finding a surgeon who was going to work on my shoulder, I did a lot of fact-checking. I talked to everybody who had had the same kind of torture done to them and asked them who is the least torturous of the torturers out there. Who has the best success rate? You know, it, it makes a lot of sense because I want somebody who's going to be able to correct the injury with the least amount of excess damage. And that's essentially what we do when we enter into these kind of surgical dynamics in our relationships with other people. Can we address and help them to work through and overcome and heal in the area of our life without, in the end, doing more damage than, we, than was there in the first place? Because sometimes that insensitivity, that kind of crude way of approaching people, you know, that well, like people who like to say, well, I can't help it, I just gotta say it the way it is. You know, my advice to you, if that's your philosophy in life, is shut up. <laughs> You're probably gonna do more damage than good. You know, it's a, a soft answer turns away wrath. I mean, none of us want somebody telling us the truth in a way that is like a bludgeoning in a back alley. We want people to be careful and loving towards us in that process because they're concerned with helping us to get past something that will only become a spiritual infection in their life or a crippling dynamic in their walk with God. One of the reasons that we find that Paul gives, says this is because in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, when he makes the comment, he says, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. In a sense that when we're talking with people, we have to realize that not everyone has the faith to receive what we have to say. And that's why Jesus adds this injunction. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't take the meat, the sacrificial meat on the altar and throw it to the dogs to eat. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. Now clearly, Jesus' language is, 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 uh, is metaphorical and it's not hard to understand what he's actually trying to say. Dogs in the biblical world were not the, the cute, cuddly, beloved pets that we have in our homes today. They were mangy, often rabid stragglers and scavengers who roamed the streets at night in, in deadly packs. 
and they would bite, fight, attack, and eat anything or anyone that looked like their next meal. They were considered to be a very vicious and dangerous animal. The last thing you would do was to, on purpose, feed them, either to keep them coming around or eat, keep them from eating your hand with it, especially when you're talking about the sacred meats that were offered in sacrifice on the altar. The whole idea of what's being implied here is that to, Jew, to do that on the part of a Jew would be unthinkable because it would be such a level of sacrilege and disrespect. Likewise, we would never toss a, a precious pearl in front of a wild boar, the kind of wild boars that actually still roam the forests of Israel in the North Country. I've actually encountered a couple of them, and let me tell you, they're much more frightening in real life than you can ever imagine. I was hiking and I came across, they came across me and boy, that was, they have huge tusks. They're very scary animals, but you would never throw a pearl or any kind of jewel in front of them because he says they'll trample the jewels under their feet and most likely with both the dog and the pigs, he says, they will turn and tear you to pieces so that there is a downside to that dynamic. Again, Jesus' concern here is not for pigs, it's not for pearls, it's not for dogs. His concern is that we're not spending the treasures of God's kingdom on people who do not value the very word of God that we're giving to them. These are people who have no appreciation for either the value or the importance of the gospel. I mean, in fact, Scripture repeatedly warns that attempting to teach and correct people Usually, such this people of this kind, at least, usually not only proves to be futile, but eventually proves to be counterproductive. It was Solomon who put it this way in, in Proverbs chapter 9. He said, whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Do not rebuke a wise man or excuse me, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. So here are two different scenarios. He says, there are some people that as soon as you begin to talk to them, their response says very clearly to you, this is only gonna read, lead to insult, it's gonna lead to abuse, and probably provoke greater hatred. On the other hand, when you share with someone and they become encouraged or enchanted by what you have to say, that's gonna produce a loving relationship. It's gonna result in them becoming wiser and more insightful, and it's gonna result in them becoming righteous and learning to walk in God's ways. That's why three times Jesus gave somewhat of a similar response or instruction when he said in Matthew 10, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, he's telling his disciples, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. Now, shaking the dust off your feet is, is, again, sort of metaphorical. The idea is that I am so done with you, I'm not gonna even let the dust on, that I picked up while I was walking in your streets cling to me. I'm leaving everything behind. I'm moving on to something else. It's kinda like we would say, you know, don't let the door hit you on your way out. It's the idea that your leaving is welcome, and it says, I'm not going to be party to what you're about. In other words, we shouldn't waste precious time trying to convince or convert someone who, as Jesus and Isaiah both put it, have hearts that he said are calloused, 
They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. He adds, otherwise they might see and with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But when he talks about a person being a calloused heart, it's exactly, the word there, calloused, in the original means exactly what it's translated. The idea of a piece of skin that has been so abused that it first leaves a dead layer that hardens and becomes desensitized to the touch any longer. Years ago when I used to play a guitar, I, I would play, play it until the point where my fingertips were nothing else but calluses on my left hand because they had been hardened so that the strings wouldn't cause discomfort or pain. But at the same time, it was very difficult to touch things and feel what you were touching because it was deadened. That's the idea of a calloused heart. It's a heart that has been abused both by others and by one's own self to such a degree that there's a solid wall of deadness that will not allow God's truth or anything to penetrate. And so they can't hear, they can't see, they can't even comprehend what you're saying. And we'll explain that more in a moment. What we do know, and we talked about this last time, is you and I are not able to accurately judge somebody else's soul, or at least we would say the motives behind why they do that, what they do. And this is really an area where I think we are tempted to transgress quite a bit. We look at someone's actions and we assume that we understand the motivation behind the action, when in fact we really don't and we're more often wrong than right. That's, there's not some, a simple line that goes from something somebody does to the reason why they do it, and many times the reasons are really the opposite of what their action requires. I mean, there are many people who are in relationships that I call get away closer. I mean, they send these messages out, I want you, I love you, I need you, why don't you show me your care and affection? And as that person moves closer, it becomes so threatening to the person who is crying out for love that they do the opposite and they push the person away. They build up, they erect a barrier around their life, a wall to protect them from being hurt because of past experiences, and yet they're always standing on the parapet of that wall crying out, why doesn't anybody love me? But anytime somebody tries to get close to them, they're pushed away. So the motive, oftentimes we look at that person and say, well, they're just a hateful, angry person who doesn't like other people. Well. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't like other people. Every one of us likes other people. Every one of us wants other people close to us. But sometimes in the effort to find that closeness, we get hurt. It's like Paul Simon said in, in, in I Am a Rock. He says, if I never loved, I never would have lost. If I never would have loved, I never would have felt pain. And most of us understand that when we try to reach out and get close to people, there's always this struggle to get close and to kind of prevail past the things that we do to each other that hurt and offend and wound. And in that process, many of us conclude, loving is too painful, therefore I'm going to keep people at a safe distance and not let them touch me. Well, that's the problem because then you become isolated and alone. So that when you're talking with somebody who seems to say, well, I don't feel like anybody cares about me, and yet when you try to get close to them, they push you away, you can draw the wrong conclusion about what's the motive behind what they're doing. What you see is their action, but you don't see the soul damage that came before the action, the self-protective behavior that follows it. And that's why it's always dangerous for us to make assumptions about why people do the things that they do. 
And I think it's therefore really important, as we were told last time, that we should never fall into the, the, the trap of predicting what somebody's future fate is or even their final eternal destiny. Jesus' warning is essentially, do not write people off. Just because they seem far from God at this moment, don't write them off. I, I learned this lesson just this last week. My wife and I, when I mean, God really took us to school on this one because there was someone who had, in our past, who had done us great damage. And, you know, about a month ago, God said, you need to start praying for them. Well, I tried. I did a little. I, I started praying for him because basically in my own mind is this person is so dark and so far from God, there's just no way that they're ever going to turn and surrender their life to Christ. And then my wife and I both get separate emails where this person is asking for our forgiveness, confessing their sins and their failures and saying, I'm so sorry for all the things I did. And my wife, I just kind of jaws, kind of hit the desk, you know, we're kind of shocked as going, God, I had written this person off. I, I had confessed it. I just concluded that, that she's never going to turn back to the Lord. She's never going to own this. And yet there it was. And I thought to myself, God forbid me. Because nobody is ever beyond the reach of God. If there's breath, there's hope. And that's the attitude we have to have. We have to believe that God is, is that one who wants to restore. But at the same time, we have to be discerning as to how open that person is at any given moment to hear the word of God, to hear what God has to say. And I'm always conscious when I'm talking with people is what I'm going to say to be something that they're going to value, or is it just going to be caught casting my pearls in front of swine? You see, Jesus' advice is really simple. Fish where the fish are located and fish where they're biting. You know, sow your seed in good soil. Don't put it on the pathways. Don't toss it on the rocky cliffs. Put it into the good soil where it will grow. And that way, and essentially, that says to us, go where we know that people are open, where people are hungry for the truth of God. Don't waste your time with those who aren't. And we have interesting examples, not just one or two, although I'm going to only cite one, but we have many examples of this in the scriptures, not only in Jesus' mission and the mission of his disciples, but also after his resurrection in the book of Acts. For example, when Paul and, and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, they did something that you began to see as a pattern throughout the book of Acts. When they would come to a city, the first thing they would do is search out the Jewish community. And the reason they did, because Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, 5, he says, don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. The early church interpreted that to mean that the first stop should always be at the local synagogue to give those people, the Jews, the first opportunity to receive or to reject the message of Christ. And that's exactly what we find happening when they come to the city of Pisidian Antioch in modern-day Turkey today, and they go to the local synagogue and present their message. We read then in chapter 13, verse 42 of, of the book of Acts, it says, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism, these would have been Gentiles, we call them God-fears, who 
attended the synagogue, tried to follow the law, but were not fully converted. In other words, they weren't circumcised. They didn't do all the things that went with being a Jew. But they were devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against Paul, what Paul was saying. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, quote, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He goes on, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And so Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. And they went to Iconium where things were much better until they weren't and Paul was stoned and almost killed. But anyway, um, but essentially, if I can quote that musical prophet, Kenny Rogers, you gotta know when to hold them, you gotta know when to fold them, you gotta know when to walk away, and you also know when to run. And if you follow the story of Paul, you find that on many occasions, he did exactly that. He got up and he ran out of town because there was no value in him perishing in the place where he was. You see, on the one hand, we're being clearly forbidden to prejudge who may or may not receive the message of the gospel. But we're also commanded not to force God's word on those who show no interest in it. Many non-Christians have been needlessly offended by overzealous and pushy evangelical zealots. When I was a very young believer, I got involved for a short time with a, uh, a cowboy evangelist, wonderful guy. Him and his wife were just the most precious, loving, gracious Christian people you'd ever want to meet. They'd give you anything and everything uh, just out of the love of Christ for people. But uh, Nick was a great guy, but he wasn't a great Bible student. In fact, he wasn't all that literate. And so when he read things, he never really considered context. He, he saw the Bible as being kind of like prophetic words. And he came to Ezekiel where the Lord told Ezekiel, the prophet, if you don't go and speak the judgment and doom that's coming upon Judah because of their sins, their blood is upon your hands. Well, Nick interpreted that to mean that if you didn't witness to every single person you encountered every day, that their blood was on your hands and they were going to go to hell. He also believed that you would go with them. So it was a very scary prospect. So what that created in me was a really annoying, obnoxious, aggressive, pushy Christian. I mean, I tried to actually do that. I thought, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I remember having guys literally say, if you don't back off, I'm going to cave your face in. It was in the face of that threat that I began to rethink the theological basis of that, that whole approach to ministry. Because not only was it going to lead to having my face restructured, but it was also not effective. 
that what I was doing is offending people by my aggressiveness. Now let me be really careful about this. And I, I'm not trying to judge you, but sometimes in our effort to spread the word, we've just become inconsiderate of what other people think or feel. In other words, you have a business and you force all of your employees to listen to Christian radio or Rush Limbaugh, one or the other, I don't know. You, you, have, a, you have a restaurant and, and you play Christian music that's overtly evangelistic and you think, well, this is the way I'm getting the word into their heart. That, you know, the gospel is communicated intelligently, informationally, and the Holy Spirit works on that. And so oftentimes what is more effective is the simple winsomeness and loving and graciousness of your character. It's like the old saying that we oftentimes need to earn the permission to share our gospel message. And I say there's a balance here because I think there are times, I find all the time when I'm in some kind of public transport, especially like an airplane when you're locked in this aluminum tube for 10 hours with somebody who is, you know, sitting next to you, not by choice of their own, but by that of the airlines. And it always comes up, so what do you do? You know, and I always try to think of always clever answers, you know, well, I, 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 I work for the big three, you know. <laughs> You've probably heard of them, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you know. You try, you know, you're always trying to figure out some way of presenting this gospel and so forth. But the thing I find is that oftentimes the person, after they find out where you're at, either asks for a new seat assignment or decides that they're engrossed in finding the sports page in the Wall Street Journal. You know, it's, it's uh, by the way, the Wall Street Journal doesn't have a sports page. Anyway, for those of you who don't, don't read the Wall Street Journal, I don't know if anybody does. Anyway. But the whole point is that, I get off point, don't I? <laughs> the whole point is this, that there needs to be wisdom in sharing with people because we're not just simply seeking to collect scalps or carve notches in our belt. That every evangelistic encounter should strive to have some kind of relational dimension to it. So that most effective evangelism comes as a result of having walked a journey with somebody, spent time with somebody, and allowing them to be a participant in your life as you participate in their life. And suddenly they look at you and say, you know, there's something different about you. That doesn't mean that you can't feel led of the Spirit just to share the gospel sometime at some moment. But at the same time, it's this consideration that if you have to force feed somebody, they're probably not enjoying what you're feeding them. It'd be like me saying, come on over for dinner, I want to fix you my favorite, my favorite meal. You know, I just, I just love undone frog legs, you know? And I'm serving out to you. I don't know if you've, this happened to me actually in a minute, uh, uh, what state was I in? Anyway, Wisconsin. Frog legs. Gag a maggot. Oh, the frog leg lovers are over there going, oh, well, you just didn't have them prep prayers right. <laughs> the France know how to cook frog legs. <laughs> That's why all their frogs are legless. But anyway. But essentially, we need to understand that people need to know that we care and not, we just, and not just that they count or we're keeping count. We need to let them know that they care. And I think one of the traps that we fall into, even especially in our 
in our Western culture where everything is, has a numeric value to it is we really get caught up in counting. You know, how long have you prayed? How many times have you read through the Bible? How, how many people have you won to Christ? We, we, we think this is our culture, by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but we live in a culture that wants to quantify everything into a statistic. And people aren't statistics. People can't be categorized that neatly because no matter how many categories you change, you create, there are people who won't fit into the box that you've reserved for them. And so it takes time to discover who somebody is and what is their peculiarity, what is their issue. And I found so often, even on airplane flights that are long enough, to simply just talk about, you know, where you're going, what are you doing, and finding out are you married, you have a family, and people begin to tell you stories and things about, and as you enter into their trauma, their pain, their hurt, their disappointments, their losses. I'll never forget the man that, we, as we got in the conversation, he started telling me, well, I'm, I'm flying from city to city, I lost my position, I'm trying to find a new job. And so I just started asking him, what do you do, and where have you been? And we had this conversation, and he said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, okay, and what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing. And before we got off the plane, I said, do you mind if I pray for you right now that God will help you find the right job? And the guy looked at me like, you kidding? And I was left with the sense he had never had anybody pray for him in his entire life. If there was ever a time in his life where a man needed prayer, that was the point in time. And so right there, as we're getting off the plane, we're standing in the aisle, and I just put my hands on his shoulders and started praying him as people were cursing me because we weren't getting off the plane fast enough. But we just, I just prayed that God bless this man and give him a job and help him to find that blessing. And, and when we got done, he just looked at me and said, thank you, thank you. You see, those are moments that open people up to saying, I'll never see you again. We'll probably never encounter each other ever again. But what you experienced was that one of God's servants took the time to care about your problem. I'm not gonna get anything from it, it's not gonna result in any benefit to me, but somebody cared enough to pray for your problem. And that's the kind of interaction that changes the world. Because as we get locked into this idea of numerical accumulation, one of the things we miss out on is that what really changes the world is one person at a time having their world changed, and then they begin to affect everybody else around them. And that's how the world has changed, one by one, not by masses of people coming forward. As much as I love evangelistic crusades, I think the reality of an evangelistic crusade is that it mot motivates the church to share the gospel. It, it, it certainly publicizes Christ in a community. But at the end of the day, the statistics, if I can go there, actually reveal that the number of people who actually continue on the church is relatively small. What really changes is when the church gets so stimulated by seeing the gospel presented and bringing their friends that the ones who make the deepest and longest commitments to Christ are people who are brought to an event by their Christian friends who then water that seed and nurture it and let God bring it to fruition in that person's life. You see, it's probably illustrated best by the, the parable of the sower where on one hand, Jesus begins that parable by saying that we're to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We're to be like this, a farmer, he said, who scattered seed as far and wide as possible. 
The term broadcast that we use for our media today came from this idea that the farmers in those days didn't have these neat little seed planters that they could pull behind a tractor. They had a bag full of seed and they would walk out into the field that they had, had plowed and they would just simply throw the seed out in every direction and hoping that it would give an increase. And that's essentially what he says. You know, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, we need to be willing to spread the word wherever we can, as as widely as we can. But at the same time, as he tells us to go into all the world and preach the news to all creation, we at the same time need to remember Paul's counsel to the Corinthians where he said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but God made it grow. Only God makes things grow grow. We can offer the gospel to people, but we cannot force the gospel on people. And that's, that's a difference. Because sometimes we can get passionate, we can get earnest, we get concerned that somehow time is running out, and we begin to press people beyond the point that is really appropriate. Well, let me, <laughs> uh, should I say this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to sound critical of my peers, but when I do a funeral or do a wedding, I know that there are a lot of non-Christians, especially at a funeral, and it's tempting to want to just lay the gospel out there. And what I try to do is to butter the toast very gently (laughs) because the simple reality is that you have a captive audience. They didn't come to listen to me talk about the gospel. They came to honor the person who's deceased. And I never want to lose sight of that. I never want to be disrespectful of that or take advantage of the opportunity because I've had conversations with people who said, I went in there and I got harangued against my will and I didn't leave because I didn't want to disrespect my friend, but I can't believe that I was subjected to that and told that I'm going to hell because I don't have Jesus in my heart. Let me just say, there's a way to say that without putting it in those terms. You know, my presentation is a little more simple. I usually love, I love open caskets because I just point to it and say, you know, there's a box reserved for you. (laughs) One day, you're going to be here and your friends and family are going to be gathered saying goodbye to your earthly remains. And then comes eternity. And are you ready for eternity? And then you present the gospel. It's not, it's not a defensive thing, it's not rude, but it, it makes people pause and think and reflect upon the direction that their life's going. Again, it doesn't mean that we ever turn a cold or uncaring heart towards those who reject the message either. We're called to love and to pray for people. Um, We're called to love and pray for the despisers, the mockers, the persecutors, the rejecters, because anything that they do while they're still breathing is not forever. But equally important, you don't want to waste your time, which is the most precious and limited resource that you possess. You only get to spend these moments once. And believe me, when I'm thinking about talking to you on a Sunday morning like this, I just want you to know I'm extremely conscious that you're surrendering to me the most precious and valuable thing you have is your time. And I think every preacher needs to work really hard not to waste any of that time. Because it's, once it's spent, it's gone. But the same thing I think when I'm sharing with people, this most valuable resource that I have, 
I shouldn't waste it trying to pressure someone who doesn't want to hear what I have to say in the first place. Even if that person is a close family member, consider what Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. He said, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In, in the Greek, when a rhetorical question is asked, it's always in the negative. In other words, you don't. You don't know that. In the same way, we can make assumptions, but at the end of the day, as Solomon succinctly warned in Proverbs 23, do not speak to a fool, for he'll scorn the wisdom of your words. But I found that with my family members, after I had felt that I had enough of an opportunity to fully explain to them the message of the gospel, that I left the rest of it to my own life to preach to them. That as they were around us, they would be, have the opportunity to observe how we deal with life. And we found that those who ended up coming to Christ said, we've just watched how you deal with life. And we decided that we wanted to receive Christ. It's also, I think, important for us to realize that it's Christ who saves by way of the Holy Spirit. It's not you. Your tenacity will not save anybody. The Holy Spirit has to bring person to Christ. If they don't want to hear you, then don't be obnoxious. Don't become ceaselessly annoying in your pushiness. Just let it go and let God. And I would say even when you think about family members and gift giving, don't give your family members Bibles for their birthday or Bibles for Christmas or your latest Christian book that you read. I mean, give them those things when you have the opportunity and just simply say, hey, but if it's a gift and they're expecting to get something that they would enjoy immediately, buy them a box of chocolates. I mean, <laughs> five bucks, you can get those Sanders salted caramels down at Costco just in case you're thinking about me. <laughs> but by all means, pray that God will create circumstances in the life of even those who reject the gospel that will cause them to suddenly step back and say, there's something missing in my life. This is my wife and I's prayer every day for a long, long list of family members that, that somehow the, the emptiness that is there that void that's in their soul because they don't have Jesus would become so haunting and so pressing on them that they would start searching for something else. Like me, they'll probably search everywhere but Jesus. For me, Jesus wasn't even the last resort. I never gave it a thought until Christ confronted me and I suddenly realized, as Thompson said in his famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, I discovered that the one I had been running from all my life was the one who, had been, who I'd been looking for, the hound of heaven. I believe that God is a hound who's seeking after those people. But let me kind of bring this baby in for a landing by talking a little bit more about the parable, the sower, because I think it's such an important instructive parable, not only because it's, it's, it's repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it really gives us insight into the way that people respond to the gospel. And he tells us, Jesus tells us there's only four different responses that people have when, you, when they hear the message of the gospel. There are four different souls or, or soil types he talks about. And there's uh, the seed is one. The seed, he says, is the word of God. 
And he says, when the sower goes out to sow the seed, that seed, as I said, he broadcasts it, and it lands in different places. The first one, he says, some fell along the path, and the birds came, and they ate it up. I mean, the, the path was a place that had been trod by, by people and was so hardened and so dry and so lifeless and so un, uh, incapable of sustaining life that the sea would just lay on the surface, the, de- the, the birds would come and snatch it up and fly away, and that would be the end of it. The second kind, he says, is some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It, it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up and the plants were scorched, they withered because they had no root. And then he says, thirdly, that other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain or bear fruit. And then lastly, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, and even 100 times. His disciples asked him, well, we don't understand what this means. And if this is the first time you've heard this parable, you're probably wondering the same thing. And so that's why I'm here today. Aren't you lucky? (laughs) I'm going to tell you what he means. First of all, what I really believe is that he's talking about both the saved and the unsaved. The first two people I put in the category of those who are unsaved. And, second, and it explains a lot when we think about how people respond to the message. The first one, he talks about the seed that falls on the paths. And it says, what happens as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes the word away. In other words, this, the seed doesn't have even a chance to even take root in their life. Some instantaneous distraction arises and it's snatched away and it's gone. I saw that in myself before I got saved. There were so many times where the gospel was presented to me in different contexts and I could feel it impacting my life. At the same time, I was saying to myself, I don't want to hear this because I don't want to give up my future hopes and dreams. And as soon as I found something to distract me, I went with it. And it's amazing because Satan always seemed to provide an immediate distraction, something that would take my mind off of that and off I'd go and completely forget about it, having no memory of anything that was said to me. I would just simply say, well, it was kind of an uncomfortable moment. In fact, I was so set in my ways in this regard that later on, I remember in college when I'd be walking towards class and some guys would be out there evangelizing, I would literally go blocks out of my way to avoid having to confront these people. I didn't want it. The devil had convinced me that if I let that seed set on the soil of my life for any amount of time, my life would be ruined, and that was the last thing I wanted it to do. So there are lots of people in that place. You can share the gospel with them, and it just... You know, the worst ones are the people looking and go, oh, that's nice, I'm so happy for you. You probably needed that. Those are the people I feel who are the farthest from God. They think they're good people and they're okay and because all dogs go to heaven and so they've got it made. And they're the ones who are the least resistant. The devil has so snatched the seed of truth out of their hearts that it doesn't even begin to penetrate The second one is the rocky places, and I think this is the one that frustrates most of us if we are in ministry or towards other people, where he says that these are people who receive the word with joy. Haven't you seen that where someone comes and their life's in a a tough space and and, uh, you start sharing Christ with them and they, they light up and go, yeah, that's what I need. I need Jesus in my life. And they 
they ask Jesus into their heart and they're part of the fellowship and they're full of joy and their excitement. And they, it's like, like a new toy coming to church and hanging out and learning the songs and you just go, wow, this person really got saved. It's so exciting to see what happens. But then he says to them, it sprang up quickly. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. They were converted, but it was a very shallow conversion. So that he goes on to say, they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. In the time of difficulty, the time of tribulation and hardship, in other words, when it becomes hard and they have to make difficult choices and commitments to follow Christ and leave some things behind, they decide that they're going to go back to the thing that they loved before because they love that more than they do God. There's, no, there's a shallowness there. My heart has been broken by those people so many times I can't even begin to count. But when I begin to understand this parable, I have understood that they really never had a deep relationship with God. They never really had a deep encounter. They're, there was a shallow experience. They were excited about the idea. I remember one time I was in Redding, California, of all places, walking into a grocery store to buy a cup of yogurt to nourish me on my trip as I was driving south. And I'm coming down the aisle and I encounter a guy that I recognized from church. And I started talking. He said, hey, how you doing? We had this small talk and so forth. They said, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. He says, yeah, no, I'm not going to church anymore. I said, well, why not? He said, well, I tried it. It didn't work. So I'm moving on to something else. And then he walked away. And I, I actually stood there stunned because I'm thinking, how do you try Jesus and then go on to something else? You see, for me as a follower of Jesus, I can see myself doing stupid stuff, but in the end of the day, I'm always going to come back to Jesus because, as Peter said, you alone have the words of eternal life. I know that Jesus is the only answer to everything, so I'm not going to waste any more of my lifetime trying to find a substitute answer. There is no substitute answer, but the only people who know that are those who have actually had a deep relationship with God. Which brings us to those who I think are the true believers, those who have truly had a conversion experience, who have truly come to know Christ. And he says they fall into two categories as well. They're those who are the seed that lands amongst the thorns, or we might say they're in ground infested with weeds. You see, my, as my wife and I observe, we, we had these blueberry plants in our, in our garden, in our yard, and, and uh, we... Uh, planted ground covering uh, all around them, and as the ground covering has prospered, the blueberries are dying. They're being choked out by this ground cover. And that's kind of the image here, that they, they not only aren't bearing fruit, they look like they're barely alive. And so they're still there, they're still alive, they're still existing, but they've stopped bearing fruit the way they once did. And that's the description he gives here, that these are people who hear the word, in other words, they, they've accepted that, but what happens is the worries of this life, pleasures, deceitfulness of wealth, and desire for other things. What other things? Something other than Jesus. Something other than Jesus. You see, I often think about that, how in my years of ministry, I've found that there have been times where I've desired the Lord, but I desired to be successful in the Lord. And I, I had to confess to my wife, I used to, 
attend a lot of conferences, and I really sat down and thought about it one day because I keep on getting these invitations, and I think to myself, well, I'm really not interested in going. And I realized that what was motivating me was because when I would go to conferences, I would network with other ministries and I would get speaking gigs so that I could be the expert from out of town. Now, let me tell you something about being in ministry or just about any kind of profession. There's nothing better than being the expert from out of town. You know, <laughs> uh, someone once called it uh, seagull management. I think it was Ken Blanchard referred to it as seagull management. You, you, seagulls, they fly in, they crap all over the place, and then they fly away. <laughs> I love to go into other people's church, tell them how it's supposed to be done, and then leave, <laughs> and leave the pastor there to fix the mess that I just created. You see, the simple reality is that I thought, realized this thing about myself, that I'm really not doing this because I love God. I'm doing this because I love me. And as soon as I realized that, I lost the appetite. It's hard for me to be any place but here because I know that God's called me to be here, to pastor this church, not to screw up somebody else's. But we live in that age where we, we're enamored by the experts. And what I, I don't want to sound cynical. There's no amor left in the experts for me. <laughs> it's like, you know, I realize they are people who have feet of clay just like me, they struggle with the same arthritic issues or rotator cuffs that I've got. You know, I mean, it's, we're all in this together. We're battling and fighting every day to, to be faithful to God. It's too much work to pretend that somehow you don't. Honesty is so much more important. That's where I think that we have to realize that it chokes us, you know, that it, it, these traps that come into worries about our life, we're worried about the future. Will I have enough to retire? Will my health be good? Will I be able to live independently? Will I be able to, on and on and on we spend, I woke up one morning realizing I, I'm borrowing tomorrow's troubles. I don't even know if I'll be alive tomorrow. I can go into surgery on Tuesday, they can put me in anesthesia, and that something can go terribly wrong, and I'll die and have to go to heaven. Doggone it. <laughs> that could ruin the entire weekend. <laughs> Please, Jesus. <laughs> or just simply pleasures, which doesn't mean that you want to live in some immoral thing, but rather that you just don't want to have to feel the struggle anymore. You've been there, I've been there. There are times when I've said, God, I'm just so tired of the battles. I just want to kind of glide and abide until you come back. And sometimes we just want to have it easy. I don't, I don't want to have to go through that conflict. I, I don't want to have, have that conversation. I don't want to have to make that choice. I'm at this point in my life that I don't want to have to take this new juncture or venture of faith that you're challenging me with. It's easy to get there. Or it's easy to get to that place where the deceitfulness of wealth, you know the deceitful wealth isn't that you're wealthy, it's that you believe that wealth will solve your problems or wealth will make you happy. It's a belief that I better hold on to what I have carefully because if I run out, I'm in really serious trouble. When God says, why do you worry about that? As we studied earlier when he talked about worry, I I'll take care of you. You need food, you need raiment, you need shelter. I know you need all those things. You don't even have to even pray about those things. You can, and even in the Lord's Prayer, he said, thank me for my daily bread, but don't plead for it. But just thank me in advance because I'm going to take care of you. I love the story of 
Hudson Taylor when he was a missionary in China and back in the 19th century, and he's riding along this, to this uh, station where they were going to preach the gospel. And as he's on the way, they had run out of food and been without food for a couple of days, and he was really, really hungry. And as he's riding along, he starts praying out loud, Lord, I thank you for this food that you're going to provide and that you would use it to the nourishment of our body. And his companion said, what are you doing? We have no food. He says, I know we don't, but when we do find the food, I'll have already prayed and I can eat immediately. <laughs> You have to stop and pray. <laughs> he promises, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. If there's anything that we need to understand in this day and age is God has made a promise to his children, I'm going to take care of you. And I'm not saying that you don't, again, need to be responsible, you don't need to be prudent, that's all true, but some of you are in a place in your life where you suddenly realize, I haven't lived responsibly, I haven't lived prudently, I've been kind of self-indulgent and excessive in certain areas, and now I find myself in this stage of life, I, I don't think I've got enough to get to the end of the journey. First of all, you don't know when the journey is going to end. God may solve your problem by just killing you right away. But more likely... God say, I'm going to take care of you in ways that you had never imagined because, you know, we get this idea that if I make a mistake, I have to go back and make it all right and fix it so, so God can bless me again, and that's not true. When I mess up and I, I make bad choices or bad decisions, I humble myself. I confess that to God. God says, I forgive you. I forgive you, and I will restore you. God will take care of you. He'll, he'll meet your need. You don't have to live a life of... Of, of worry and stress and threat. Because what that does in the end, it says it chokes us off spiritually. And I love the way that one of the Gospels put it, they do not mature. If there's anything that's a problem in the church today, it's Christians who aren't maturing in their faith. That's a lifelong process. I mean, it never ends. But we end up, when we get entangled by all this stuff, we may still be rooted in Christ, but we're not mature in Christ. Because what does maturity do? Maturity makes you fruitful, and that's why the last category is the good soil. And I love the, how he describes them. They hear the word. The word akuo in the Greek literally means just to have a, a, you know, a reception of the words. The message comes into your head. But then he adds, they understand it. In other words, that's the aha moment where we're going, I get it. I get it. The kind of experience I trust you, I know I had when I gave my life to Christ, and suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, this is the truth. Capital T, capital H, capital E, capital T, capital R, capital U, capital T, capital H. Did I spell that right? Okay. The truth. This is the truth in bold caps. That's that revelation. And then he says, they accept it. They take it up, literally. They draw it toward themselves, the word that's used there. They don't just have this revelation, but they pick it up and they embrace it into their life as being truth for every aspect of their own life. They retain it, he said. They hold fast to it. And by persevering through thick and thin, good and bad, they continue on in that journey. They're the ones who produce a crop. 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. You see, maturity is important because it's how we replicate the gospel into the lives of other people. 
And what that means is we have to more than just hear what's being said. For example, today, you may hear what I'm saying, but there's no guarantee. In fact, I guarantee you this, that there are some of you who hear what I'm saying and it means nothing to you. The, forgive me for saying, putting it this way, Jesus' words, the devil's gonna come and snatch that seed away and it's not gonna make a bit of difference in your life. You just walk out the door and you know, do the same thing, cheer for the mariners or something. which is always scary for me. <laughs> but you see, if you don't start off by realizing, no, this is truth, this is God speaking to me right now, this is understanding, this is revelation, God is speaking to me right now, I hear him saying to me, this is what you need to do. And then I accept that, I take it up into my life and saying, no, it's not only something I need to do, it's something that I'm going to do. It's going to change the trajectory of my life and as a consequence, I'm going to retain it. I'm going to cling to this. This is going to be what defines me, not what used to define me. What's going to define me is my relationship with Christ, and I'm going to persevere in that until death do us part. And he says, if you have that kind of attitude, you'll be a fruitful and effective Christian. You'll end up touching lives of people that you don't even know you're touching. And I, I got to be honest, I am shocked all the time by people I encounter who will share with me how something that happened years ago affected them and, and changed the course of their life for good. And it's something that I wasn't even aware of doing at the time. Just completely random. And I think that this is something we need to take into our hearts because later on in Luke 8, 21, as Jesus goes on talking about, he talks about those who put these things into practice are the ones who become effectual in their life. So my question really, and close with this, is to ask the, which best describes you. Where are you in that equation? Let me be honest. There have been a lot of times I've woken up and found out that I'm in the weeds. <laughs> I just realized, man, I just got caught up in success or the stuff, you know, that you, you pursue after, and I've I just been caught up in that. Sometimes I just get caught up in my own intellectualizing of life. I'm, I love to study. Sometimes I just get lost in the, the myriad of data and have to step back and go, but what about just knowing Jesus? So I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, you're bad and I'm good, or follow me because I've got it all together. Uh, walk this way, you know. It's, I <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be pretty. That's all I'm saying. Just wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> But what I am saying is, what is the goal? The goal is to be fruitful, and the way we do that is to mature in Christ, and the way we do that is that we persevere. The way we do that is we retain. The way we do that is we accept it, we take it up, and we grasp onto the thing that God showed us, and we say, this is what my life is going to be about. You'll slip back into the weeds, you'll get overgrown, you're gonna have to go and do some gardening on a regular basis. That's why I always tell you, read in the morning, pray in the morning, spend time with God, listen to the right kind of music, the right kind of information throughout the day, and you'll find that you'll keep the garden free of a lot of weeds. And you'll be thankful for it because when you get to that point at the end of life's journey, you'll look back and say, God's word to me is gonna be well done, good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the moment that we should be most concerned with in our future. The day when we stand before the presence of the Lord, we hear him say to us, well done, 
good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And I imagine that the first words out of my mouth and your mouth are going to be, all this for me? <laughs> I thought I was just a bump on a log on the body of Christ. <laughs> I thought I was the wart in the body of Christ. And you going to do this for me, God? Just saying. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to have hearts and ears and eyes that we'd be able to hear what you're saying, to see what you're saying, Lord, to, to embrace what you're saying into our lives that it might have its full impact on our lives. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, that we are, we are sinners by nature. We have been divinely saved by your grace because of the great mercy that you have towards us. Because we've confessed that we are sinners and we own that, Lord, before you. But our prayer, Lord, isn't just that we would squeak through <laughs> to the day of judgment, but that, Lord, we would mature and be fruitful. To be like Paul who said, I see a, a prize set before me, a prize of my calling. And that, Lord, that we would live to the fulfillment of that purpose for which you've called our lives. Every one of us has stuff in our life that's troubling and distracting and sometimes downright frustrating and discouraging if not hurtful and painful. Help us to persevere. To know that, Lord, in the end we're going to win. That we may be down by 10 runs in the, by the ninth inning, but somehow in that ninth inning you're going to allow us to hit back-to-back -back grand slams and win the game. Lord, we just ask that you would just encourage our hearts in that. Give us that strength, we pray in Jesus' name.